You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. Uh, we're doing another uh, conference call via online chat room here. Um, and so I'm Adam's here. Matt's here. And Matt's coming in from an hour away as you've moved in um you're home and i'm still up here in the in the suburbs in the burbs and uh for some of you guys um we may drop this i don't know we may drop this on our youtube channel so you guys can see um but this is going to be another one of our this does not equal that podcast series where we compare various landscapes and places that we've worked and um, kind of try to debunk a lot of the myths with what you may see or what you may hear about um, these certain landscape or habitat features or plant communities that we find throughout much of the United States. Um, it, it, it may seem like a, a constant reminder to you and I, Adam, and, and maybe those who listen so loyally to the podcast but details really matter and i think that for so many years now we've been taught that um you know it doesn't really matter necessarily what's growing there's so much growing out on the landscape that during the summer months everything's green it's good food's not limited there's cover everywhere right well that's not the case. And so these types of podcasts are really, really good because we can get super specific on what's growing within these pictures, identify and give you guys real, real clear direction to what something is and what's not. And this is another fantastic example of, of um, two clearly different landscapes. But honestly, a lot of people probably would think that they're semi-equal in value on a close glance because there's a lot of greenery in these photos. Yeah, totally. You know, uh, Chad and I have been talking a lot as we're um, working on the farm a good amount over the last few weeks. And, you know, the Ozarks right now is an absolute jungle. Um, yeah. I mean, it is a jungle. It is green as a gourd. There's vines and weeds and all kinds of stuff growing everywhere very quickly. And, you know, you can mistake that as going, oh, yeah, my place is thick. And then oh. December 1st, it is, I mean, the surf might as well be the surface of the moon. Just very little cover quality. And, you know, probably a lot of it goes back to deer hunters are ingrained to explore their properties a lot during um late winter early spring and summer and then stay out of them other than hunting during the fall and winter and so we're seeing only the fringes usually um 
boy, how do I say this? Uh, if, if they're a deer hunter that really explores their entire property through the fall, as in walking away, they're probably not as far enough into habitat recognition or quality habitat recognition to understand what they may be lacking. Cause they haven't even figured out the hunting side of the game really um, to improve their success. If they're intruding and being that aggressive in their, in their hunting approach. But you know, I, you think about riparian areas a lot, um, man, you go in a riparian area right now, you're going to see in, in the Midwest, just for example, you're going to see wing stem, wild golden glow, um, giant ragweed, giant ragweed, Canadian wild rye, Virginia wild rye, river oats, all this stuff that if even just a smidge of sunlight, it just is neck high. And you think, holy cow, I got some cover down here. But if you were to go back into that area in mid-December, you'd be like, whoa, this is what happened. And, and then I think when people walk during shed hunting, they're not really paying attention to the thickness because it's all covered in snow. It's like, oh, whatever. But that's when you can really key in on quality cover it's, is if you're walking during the snow when everything else is flattened and you can find areas where like, whoa, this is still really thick. If it's really thick with a foot of snow on the ground, it is a thick area. Yeah, no doubt. We often get, get asked a lot as we're corresponding with potential clients, um, you know, what's the best time of the year to come and see a property? And it always, I always like rethink that, I feel like. Uh, but what, as everyone knows, we're consulting eight to 10 months out of the year. So we're coming at any point, but there is this, window of like i really like to see that property in february march time frame weather travel permitting and time because you really see the property bare bones kind of worst condition of does it even offer cover but you and i we're out in it in there so much that okay yeah we know vegetation yeah. species. what is it what is this site going to look like in december yeah, i i know i know what it's going to look like but some of these landscapes are so drastic, so night and day, black and white from one season to the next that, again, without having that prior knowledge or multiple years on a given property to see those seasons and changes, a landowner may overlook or, or think that a property has way more cover than what it does. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth in a lot of places. I've, I've gotten to where I tell people um, the best time to, for, for us to get there is whenever you can get me there and whenever, whenever I have the time to get there, um, <laughs> whether it's July, August or September, time is so limited. And if we're going to wait until ideal January, February, it's like, well, we're just going to sit on our hands for eight months. Like, I'm just like, let's do it now. So going into the fall, you already have an idea of things to do. We can be ahead of the curve, like going into fall, like, especially July and August is like, you know, there's some things we could do even cutting in, cutting in some bedding areas or edge feathering or then spraying in October and November, depending on where you're at. It's like, if we had waited until January, February, there's some things that we might have to wait another eight months to implement. It's yeah, like, let's just get it done. Windows and time frames that, uh, that you can key into. And is there a bad time to see your property? Well, we don't think so. It's just a matter of, okay, timing. But yeah, we, we totally don't limit ourselves to the door. Unless you're trying to get us there in early November and good luck. <laughs> yeah. Um, man. And, and so another thing too, uh, you mentioned is about the details and it kind of triggered a thought in my head is like, we've got some clients doing some really amazing work. And I think we have people that aren't even clients of ours that send us messages that are doing amazing work. And even on my own farm, we're doing some amazing work. But there are certain details that, like, as we go through some of these pictures and we'll explain, is like, if all we did was that, we would be really, really awesome. But if we did some minor detail tweaks, added a few things, took away a few things, cut a few things, just a few little details. Overall, it's very small lifting stuff. 
the heavy lifting is removing whatever or doing whatever we may suggest. But those few little tweaks can make it, instead of a seven, a, a nine and a half or close to a 10 because we did those details. And man, how many times do we see somebody on social media doing straight hinge cutting? It's like the goal was great. We're accomplishing a lot. I'm sure they saw improved deer activity, but they forgot some of the details that would make that even better. There's, we often use that, that, uh, that phrase, 80 grit, 80 grit management and then 220 grit. Yeah. And there's a lot to say about that. The details really matter for the 220 grit really matters once you've done the 80 grit. But if you're trying just to go and do the 220, the, the details, they, they don't matter because nothing else is even present for that yeah. detail matter. And, yeah. and it's, I like doing detail work. I think it's fun to be, to really take that close um, observation, be very critical of stuff as we're, gonna, as we're going to be here in this podcast with these two photos. But it, it doesn't matter doing 220 if you don't have the foundation built first and foremost. So that that's why these these two photos basically you're going to see photo one is a total 80 grip management and then and then photo two we're going to be talking about the high level details from from this stage on what we're seeing let's 220 it and get yeah. really detailed because the base so, is already present it's funny you say you like the detail side because i almost hate the detail detail side i'm like i like both of it it's but, like well, I, I know we both like both sides of it, but I'm like, I don't even, I, I, most conversations are 220 grit and higher when we should be talking sometimes 80 grit and lower. For, for, for sure. I, I guess what I'm saying, I don't like 220 grit, of course, with, when, when 80 is necessary. But yeah. there's times one, once you've done so much work and put in the labor, it's like, oh, I just like adding that little cherry. It's almost like the, the, the christening of that habitat. It's like, okay, now it's done. Now I can walk away and say job well done. And I feel like, okay, it's, yeah. it's I just got to oh. follow the prescribed fire. Then I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, I, I look at it like 80 grit. If all a person did was 80 grit, the place would change drastically. Crazy. But crazy. they might not get those few little tweaks to really key in on specific bedding specific travel corridors but if they have time and they play it smart they're still going to kill them at the 80 grit management farm but it might take the 220 grit to really key it into where you're like for for me and, and you'll hear me say this so much in the future is like we're setting up our farm uh, that chad and i purchased in february to be one of those where it's like i don't have to scout every year i don't want to scout every year if I'm bouncing around five years from now, still moving stands, really how, how well am I learning this property? I should have like destination stands or stands that are set up and they're gonna be in that same spot given a lightning strike, tree die, but they're gonna be in that same area forever because it's a good area by design and I don't have to go around chasing, chasing acorn trees or chasing oak trees, scouting going, well, this is where the deer are at today. Why? Like that, that if I honestly, and, and listen to the other podcast this week, cause we'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff we're working on, but that's where the detail side of it can really come into play of going, okay, I, I, I'm working this farm and I don't want to be chasing my tail five years from now. And that tail being where the deer are going, where they're bedding. I'm going to set up destination bedding. I'm going to set up destination feeding. I'm going to set up bottlenecks in between. And I don't have to worry about learning new sets every year, trying to figure out what the deer are doing. I'm designing my farm to make the deer do what I know they already want to do, but really define it and make it to where, I don't have to put a lot of thought into what they're doing at a certain time of the year. Well, this is this we're, we're getting into a whole nother podcast that I would love to just take that thought and run with it because we're, we're, we're on the exact same page, but I'm going to hold off because it, 
we, we get way into the week. That's already in my. But I, I that's already I, in my notes for a future that, podcast. Yeah, because oh, I, I uh, no more East Galley, no more summer. This no, uh, uh-uh. uh. There's a there's a time and a window where I could bank on I'm going to that stand and and I know the resources that are going to be available. And that's what I'm hunting at that time frame. And deer are doing this because the resource or the topography is there. And bar none, that's what I'm hunting. That's how I'm hunting. Done. Yeah, totally. I mean, we all got other things going on in life. Yeah, we can, as a hunter, I think everyone listening can totally find themselves in this boat. But when it comes to trying to pick and hunt and scout and do this, we can very easily and quickly complicate things and oh. overthink them. But they don't, it doesn't have to be like that. Because really, we're hunting a very simple-minded animal. There's not many things that really they do that's just so haphazard. Yeah. My, when, I guess let's just say this, when a farm is set up appropriately. Yep. No doubt. I, you want to see kind of like annual, annual hunting patterns where it's like, I'm not, I'm not I'll moving stands around. I'm not moving blinds around. I'm just like, you know, it's September 15th. Deer's on this side of the farm. He's likely in that bedding area. He showed up on that camera or I have a hunch that there's that white oak on the edge of the food plot that's dropping acorns. I'm going to slip in there knowing I have a really good chance. I, I just need, just give me the area that he's yeah. in there. And, and okay, from, from all the other knowledge of the resources that are there, I'll figure out a way to, yeah. to try and get in there. If, if it's accessible, if it's accessible. Yeah. And if he's moving during daylight, I've got a shot. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so jumping into, that, say what? Uh, I was just going to jump right in back into the, to the photos. Um, yeah. Fo- photos. Let's let's go with a photo number one there, um, and and this is a cool a cool site, a really fantastic farm from the the bare bare roots side of things. Um, it's got a lot to build off of, but it's located in, in southern Iowa, and um, the portion of this podcast, this is not equal to that. We're talking about old fields and that term old fields people have so many different things that run through their head uh, of maybe things that you hunted when you were younger um, or bird hunted or it's just a pasture field that's unmaintained um, or it's a very nice manicured early successional field that you're going to see later on but there's a wide spectrum of what people envision when you hear the term old field and so that's what we're going to cover today. So number one photo is Southern Iowa. Um, you're looking out across an area that has been maintained, uh, a ridge top. I say maintained, maintained by plucking and removing some hedge trees that have grown up in it, but largely is a base of smooth brome, buck brush, and you can see a little bit of Indian grass popping through and the field then is as you're moving off the slope, off onto the slopes from the ridgetop, surrounded by eastern red cedar. And Adam, how many people do you think would look at photo number one and say, yep, that's an old field? Oh, yeah. You see it all a lot. And we see it a lot on the real estate side of, you know, even just listings of saying uh, former cattle farm, now great recreational grows big deer um because of the brush and it's like well out of all the brush i don't know if coral berry ranks very high on my list um the other common name is buck brush coral berry same same thing and and, you know a lot of guys in the midwest are gonna uh gonna recognize it honeysuckle family can get pretty aggressive even though it is native and uh you know it, it you see it a lot in overgrazed pastures, mismanaged pastures, pastures that have turned idle, 
fence rows. I mean, you can see it in a lot of places, especially they, places that have not had fire as well. They get spread a lot because it's got little tiny berries of birds are foraging on and then you'll see it start up on fence rows under big trees and then at that point it gets spread throughout the entire pastures but tiny little cluster of purple pinkish type berries um but man they they are it's it's widespread in a lot of places yeah. we see that really in a lot of places that we travel yeah i think um you know, if we want to real quick say, this is not deer forage out here. Very little forage. On a scale of one to 10, I'd give this a, a two because I'm sure there's some brambles mixed in there somewhere. On a scale of one to 10 for cover, I'd give it a, a three because I see a few clumps of stuff. There is some native grass mixed in, but it's not very high on anybody's scale it shouldn't be on anybody's scale for turkeys terrible for quail terrible um you know you could say well the buck brush is good for the quail but there's smooth brome all underneath it so if if we're trying to grow quail on this i hope you're prepared for extinction because it ain't happening here i would i would if if there was no smooth brome i would give a much higher value to things like quail and wild turkey there's some buckbrush obviously scattered some holes but if there was light it's smooth brome so it's like it's almost like that double whammy like oh gosh like it, even if it was trying to be something good like the understory is just chock full thick and, and what i like about this photo for everyone who's following along either Go, I guess we didn't mention that. <laughs> Go to social media if you're listening to the podcast. The photos will be there. Or if you're watching the video, obviously they're, they're there on your screen. But you can see a mowed trail and how that mowed trail then blends right into the edge. So you have a height um, you know, judge, judgment right there easily. Um, and you can see exactly how thick it is too. It's, it's almost like if you are a turkey pole or if you are a quail of any size, it's an impenetrable wall that you'd be walking to from that mode portion right into the smooth brome. And so it's just a hundred percent unusable for, for those species or a poult, turkey poult um, that is young and, and cannot get through there. And then even at that point, that buck brush is two foot tall. An adult turkey would have not trouble, but it wouldn't be found in there often no opinion maybe maybe some nesting you might see a little tur a turkey nesting a little bit like right here on the edge i would expect um, on the edge of yeah. uh, of some of this but whoa it's fawning it's you know i wouldn't be surprised to see some fawns out in that at all that that would certainly be something you could see fawning but uh, as soon as the fawn gets of age to start foraging it better pack its bags because it's not going to forage around there very much no, and that's, that's, again, the most common misconception when it comes to, okay, it's green, so there's got to be something in to eat. But if you're saying those things to yourself, there's got to be something in there to eat, and it's not wildly apparent, then that site is likely mismanaged. This is literally an, an abandoned field. It's not managed whatsoever for wildlife. Yeah. Um, it happens to find itself and be on a recreational farm, but right now the current management strategy is don't don't touch it. Um, yeah. Minus some of the hedge trees, which with this landowner, they just knew that, okay, I don't want hedge apples everywhere. I could make it a food plot, but I don't know if I should. Should I make it old field? Should I go back and, and, and it has the ability, just, just to the left of the screen, it's a tillable ag field. Like, should I farm it? just unsure of what to do. Yeah. And, and if you find yourself in that position, I can understand keeping an idol for a year or two, but this is going on for a while. Um, and so now we need to, now we need to manage it. Now we need to, to take the right steps moving forward to offer, not, not question. Well, they can find something in there to eat. It, it should be food and cover. And this is the awesome thing. You can turn that abandoned field into an old field so fast 
it, it's it's honestly mind blowing that it can happen in a matter of three months, four months. Yeah, you think you you can be like a zero to hero kind of situation from a from a wildlife perspective. Um, those acres right there can be great. And and the other thing I think that's important to to mention is one how we would do that, but two. I mentioned earlier that they had the option of doing, you know, turn this into tillable, they could do it to a food plot. But what, what the suggestion is, let's do old field. And the reason behind that is likely based on this region, based on some land use, knowing that was old pasture and um, it's, it's relation to the Midwest. Part of this was probably prairie. We're seeing Indian grass pop through and we have experience, um, other clients have experience in this region of removing pastures that look just like this and turning into old field and some just incredible responses from plant communities, um, seed bank, rootstocks that are just incredible for wildlife. That no do doubt. All food cover, insect life, burn rotation, shrubs. I mean, it's like, whoa. Yeah. Hey, head turning woe. So it, it's a no brainer um, to remove the, the smooth brome and uh, get this puppy on a burn rotation, try and reduce some of that coral berry so it doesn't take over. It is a huge, let's say composition within that uh, stand of old field. So Adam, if you were, if you saw this site, how would you recommend uh, the landowner to manage this and convert it in, from an abandoned field into an old field? Yeah, what I would say is if I had seen this place in, let's just say January, February, because that's our typical window, or even early March, I would say we're going to come in here. Looks like there's a decent amount of, of, uh, of uh, brome, you know, depending on thatch layers. I may say let's give an aerial treatment of glyphosate. Um, so get a UTV with a with a boomless sprayer on it, spraying a 30 foot swath, spray this field and kill that smooth brome. It most likely is 90% of the vegetation that's growing during that time of the year. So maybe 95%. So I can spray that whole area with glyphosate, kill back that smooth brome, and then give it a month as that smooth brome dies. And during that window of time, the buck brush is starting to really push up nutrients. I believe it looks like multiflora rose right out there in the middle of it. Um, probably autumn olive or bush honeysuckle coming on early. And if I send a fire through there a month later or in mid-April, I'm going to top kill that buck brush. I'm going to knock back the other invasives like the multiflora rose. And I'm going to release that seed bank and maybe even um, – kind of get a really give that native grass a chance to blow out of there and not have all the competition and it and I may only have to then use uh prescribed fire every two to three years and kind of set that back and over time I'm hopeful that my that my natives will out compete and really come on strong if not I may have to do some spot treatments of herbicide to kill the buck brush or the coalberry but I honestly, based on my experience, feel like I can weed it out pretty drastically with just appropriately timed fire. And that being in that, you know, out of the gate, I want to hit it with some, grow, uh, some dormant season fires. So pretty much everything, all the natives are going to be still mostly dormant, especially since this is an upland site those native grasses are going to be dormant or just starting to pop and I can send a fire through and not hurt them, actually help them. And I can set that coral berry back as well as a multiflora rose because it's pushing nutrients. It's sending a lot of it up to the top and I hit it back and it's like, ugh, it's like walking through the desert for 40 days and thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to make it. And then all of a sudden you get hit back and realize you're going to have to spend 40 years there and you're like, I don't know if I have the endurance for this. It's in all its nutrients up and you hit it with fire. It's not going to produce much that, that, the, the, that same growing season. Yeah. And, um, 
you're talking about fire and following that up after herbicide application of the, the smooth brome and, and another. Month. Yeah. And yeah. that's, and it, if you do I it too it, early, I don't feel you get a true, a, a, a true, like if you did it in two weeks when it's all starting to, let's just say it's really dry and it's only been two weeks. In my experience, I don't think you get the quality of kill because not all the roots have, that, that herbicide has not been fully taken up and killed the entire root, the root stock. It's, I think you're going to have some, uh, some very patchy, patchy. Rome, fescue, they're, they're very vigorous plants. And so, yeah, like, like you're saying, if it looks dead on top after a week and a half or two weeks, don't just go drop a match. There's a lot of still mobilization of herbicide getting two root systems. It might be showing suffering, those signs up top, but it still could be um, have enough activity down below. And so you want to make sure that all the herbicide has gone to the root system before burning it off. But it is, it is important. Is it 100% necessary? No, but it is important, in my opinion, for the best growth and response after spraying it is to burn. I know there's states out there um, where it can be difficult to, um, to burn, but you said, hey, I, I can do old field. In, in a picture like this, you're seeing 18 inch tall smooth brome. When that all lays over after being sprayed, that's a really heavy, thick mat layer of, of grasses that even natives are starting to pop through later in the summer uh, in growing season that it would be difficult for that to happen. Will that decompose over time? Yes, of course, but a fire would consume that thatch in a matter of minutes and allow basically a full growing season, nothing impeding that growth of the natives that we want. And uh, photo number two, you're gonna see exactly that process and that happens. So um, if you can get a fire, really highly encourage you to do that after the herbicide is really taken, taken uh, itself down to the root system, totally killed that smooth brome. Yeah, so I mean, if, if you do that in February and burn and I get our spray in February, burn in April, early April. I mean, shoot some turkeys over it, have some fun, watch some yeah. broods be carried through there. Um, but then ultimately prepare to be amazed come June and July, cause it's going to look totally different. Following <laughs> that up, the next growing, the next dormant season, excuse me, I'd like to see some shrubs planted out through there um, to really take that to the next step. And, and honestly, what I'd probably do is find some of those, uh, trees around hedge trees and cut them drag them out in the middle and then plant the shrubs in those treetops rather than have to put tubes in cages and all that nonsense to try to get those things to grow I'd rather just two or I'd rather just plant a bunch of bare roots uh, seed seedlings right in a treetop of a hedge or a any kind of tree other than a I wouldn't like to use a big green cedar but if you're gonna have much of a bare big, root that next fire that goes through there yeah and so then i do that and you're gonna ask well what about fire in three years i would mow and maybe lightly disc around those little uh shrub pockets and then and then once i've lit my backing fire i may drop out there and light a little bit around those shrubs so it burns off of them really slow and i don't scream a head fire through it so um, ultimately that's going to be the management for me is, and then spot treating invasives. Um, and then if coral berry is still not being uh, suppressed, I'm really be shocked if it wasn't with the fire at the appropriate time, because one thing I didn't mention is once you start getting a good base of, let's say ending grass and stuff coming in and you catch a good hot, dry August, I'd probably send a, a growing season fire through there to really set that buck brush back and promote more herbaceous forbs um, or herbaceous plants like forbs. And that would ultimately, I feel really, really, I mean, at that point, if you're still seeing buck brush to this degree, which you wouldn't, I would say, then we'll talk herbicide. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. I, I think a, a lot of people's resort is go straight to herbicide and and um if let's just say in this picture you took all this the smooth brome away and you replaced it with great annual perennial weed bases um heavy forbs and you still had that much buck brush man 
you would be killing out so many Forbes trying to kill the buckbrush with herbicide. It's like, yeah. no, no, we, we've, got, we've got a better way to do it that's actually going to do the reduction that we want, but then replace it with Forbes. So yeah. you, you, you don't want to just jump right into herbicide, um, even if you're more comfortable going that route versus a growing season fire, because the result is not the same. You're gonna have more collateral damage with herbicide being a broad leaf, it's not selective, than going with a growing season fire on a site like this, if you're dealing with buckbrush problems after removing smooth brome yeah. and a initial fire. But this, this site though, I mean, I, I don't want people to think that this is a bad site because in our eyes, we totally see potential. This is, this is fantastic. Um, in, in the making, two years from now, this is gonna be wildly different wildly different yeah let's see picture number two picture yeah, so number two for, for guys that are uh tuning in on the podcast typical place i guess matt and i are assuming guys are watching this online but for you guys that are listening uh we're switching over and and uh kind of seeing a post treatment here. So Matt, explain what we got going on. So, so this photo um, takes us to South Central Ohio, excuse me, Southwestern Ohio. This picture was just sent, I mean, we're talking about a couple of days ago um, from clients who implemented essentially what we just talked about, the, the prescription uh, a couple of minutes ago. So this site, I visited it in February, March. I visited in March, and this was um, nearly all fescue. This whole portion of the farm, the ridge slope, the ridge tops and slopes, um, eighty percent of them were, were dominated with um, with tall fescue, which essentially is a is a the equivalent of smooth brome in a different region of the country. Still non-native cool season grass, uh, pasture type grasses. Um, and they've gone in and sprayed that grass, got it removed, burned the thatch off, and now this is their plant response in the middle of June. And so from a this does not equal that, Adam, what are you seeing in this photo? I see a lot of common ragweed. <laughs> I think I see some milkweed. There was a lot of milkweed on this and site. I think I see some bull nettle, which isn't shocking to be growing. And then I can't tell what this tall stuff is to the left of the screen. Maybe pokeweed. I, I, it's got, it looks like it's got a pointier leaf to me that looks because there's some left. Uh, I of hope the, it's not teasel. Like, it's um, no free pot. Is not and then what's this to the right over in a corner? It kind of looks like a Maximilian sunflower, but. Kind of what it looks like to me too. I can't, I can't clearly identify it from this photo, but. And you did a before and after too a few days ago, on our social media. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to look too hard on Facebook or Instagram to see what this site looked like in March or whenever they sprayed it, um, or a couple right. weeks after they sprayed it. it looks pretty, pretty barren. Um, but I see a good diversity of plants. Um, I see, you know, the big tree in the middle. Uh, so I'm not seeing a lot of woody encroachment, not seeing a lot of shrubs. I'm seeing mainly herbaceous plants, few sprigs of grass, but mainly a herbaceous base. So when I see this and especially, was this burned bat or was it just sprayed? No, this was, this was, uh, most of it was burned, is what I was told. But I see some, some what looks like some dead thatch. So maybe portions of this didn't burn. I'd say as well. my gut would but, say this was not burned. This has just been sprayed because of the, the amount of woody stems you see standing. So I would, uh, you know, I'd say decent brood rearing. If it had been burned, it would have been way better brood rearing phenomenal fawning habitat out here, especially in the right and the left around these little clumps, lots of food, um, you know, fawn can hide in that. And an adult deer can hide in this, especially later in the summer as this common ragweed and milkweed blows up. But uh, I'm seeing 
deer food galore um, that they didn't have to pay for, pay for other than the labor to, to spray. Um, I mean, just buku's amount of deer, deer forage. Being that this is probably got some crop country, I'm surprised I'm not seeing mare's tail or horseweed. Um, See some very, like on the very border of the, the picture down low. Gotcha. So Mayor, you know, go down. another native species that deer browse, um, you know, depending on, depending on um, location of the country, you're going to probably, if you've got crops around and you're doing old field stuff, you're probably going to see some of the weeds that farmers hate and curse and hate some more. You're probably going to see some of them show up which we have to first identify is this a native or non-native and if it's a native we're going to have to look at it with a different lens and say not sure why i hate this but let me just look at you let me take a good look at you as earl uh, bassmaster says and so um i would uh, definitely or ed bassmaster says um you know with some of these natives that are going to come up like common ragweed gets hated by a lot of people this is just this is pretty stinking beautiful on a scale of one to ten for forage standpoint, I'm giving it at least a seven, if not an eight. Uh, maybe even the reason I don't give it a nine is there's probably not a lot of woody um, browse out here for winter forage and spring. Um, but during the, you know, from pretty well February, sometime in February, you're going to start seeing some green stuff, especially out of the biannuals um that may be coming in here in a few years but at least by late march early april forage all the way till the first major frost very readily available in this area yeah and that's the thing of okay at this site it, it at the moment it's lacking that woody structure um but what i do like to see you you mentioned a lot of the food aspects of it is i like to see the different height structures of the individual plants out there. In comparison to the photo number one, everything was a really about the same level height-wise as buckbrush and smooth brome was about 18 to 24 inches tall across that whole site. Yeah. In this photo, you can see different plant structures from like umbrella type plants. Then you see some um, plants that are more erect. They're just dead straight up and they have like opposite leaves. And so you're seeing old growth, new growth, and then new growth is at different stages and different heights. And so yeah. that's just breaking up um, from an animal standpoint, from a, from a wild game standpoint, um, outlines, it's casting shade. Um, it's leaving some things in the sun. And so it, I, I love it from that diversity of structure standpoint. Um, but like you said, they nailed, they nailed it on, on the food. And, and when I say they nailed it, man, they got, they got very fortunate with what's coming back year one. And so it's yeah. fantastic to see um, that response, even in this site. Um, that, you know, quite frankly, you've worked another property, I mean, a couple miles from this one, and uh, there's a heavy invasive load. And so to see this response so far, is very encouraging and they know to stay aware of um, any native, uh, excuse me, non-native invasive species encroaching to these fields. They know to stay on it from an herbicide standpoint and then um, if they need to continue using fire um, yeah. to eradicate those non-natives. So this site, awesome. The only, the only suggestion I would have is to go in and add in the shrubs, cut down some trees, bring some woody structure out into these units um, to, to just get add in that diversity, that component that would be naturally forming. Again, this is year yeah. or let's say month number four um, of, of implementing this. So, so far, man, it's looking awesome. And this is where we mentioned earlier, those details matter. And you look across this one and you see lots and lots of green or, or maybe to the untrained eye, all you see is weeds and you, you, you wouldn't know that this is far better and, and 
drastically exceeds photo number one, but it does in, in many different categories. Well, I guess all the categories that we're talking about in um, through this, I, this does I, not equal that podcast. I guarantee you there's way more insects and oh, around this. By uh, far. Way more life. I think, you know, some people may not see it for what it is because their eyes are closed the whole time because they're sneezing constantly just thinking about the amount of ragweed. But um, this is just, I mean, if you, like you said, you add the woody structures, you plant the shrubs, you maybe get a few more bramble patches mixed in. That's where we can take this from a 70 managed with 80 grit management, incorporate 220 grit and get it to a nine because we have that almost year round forage. And to key it in on species management, if this had been burned, I would rank it a very high nine and a half for brood rearing. Oh yeah. I yep. waited two years and I started getting more perennial encroachment, a little bit thicker herbaceous uh, plants and grasses, maybe even throw in a few shrubby pockets or forest regeneration pockets or stump sprouts. I'd say this is, a, this is an eight or nine in nesting cover not quite as good brood rearing cover. But I know that by year four, it's gonna get a fire and it's gonna be knocked back and it's gonna be more brood rearing. We've said this before and we're gonna start reiterating it over and over and over again that you can go from brood rearing to nesting just from your timing of burning. Now, think about it from a deer standpoint, if it's brood rearing habitat for turkeys, it's high quality summer forage for deer because it's more of a herbaceous plant community like ragweed, like mare's tail, like pokeweed, like early young regrowth of American blackberry. But then from the third year burn cycle where what we're saying is quality nesting cover for turkeys, it's more of a woody browse late winter, early spring forage and deer bedding um, for the deer, obviously. So uh, you can kind of have two main species that so many people manage for kind of bouncing around from prop from not property to property, but parts of the farm to other parts based on their needs during that time of the year. And what's really cool about this site is, is the ability one, they've got a plan that now breaks out. Um, it's at 150 or so of acres that look like this now of old field across this farm. They got so many different burn units that they can have this continual ro rotation of um, two to three year burn rotations on on different units. So they always have nesting available. They always have brood rearing cover readily available. But um, what's also neat is that a lot of these a lot of these rooftops they have these coves and these fingers or these hardwood drains that kind of cut up to the center of the ridge top. And so from a woody structure standpoint if they're going to go in and add that or simply cut down um, treetops and drag them out there we know that deer really associate bedding close to that woody structure so that's going to go back into the cove type areas um, so that a lot of the ridge top plots or ag fields that are still remain on this property that they can be accessed on foot and again where the woody structure is where deer are going to likely be bedding. And so that's going to still allow them to access and move throughout this farm. Even when deer are utilizing the old field, it's going to be five, six, seven foot tall in some areas. But most of the bedding is going to be tucked back against or in those coves, a little bit more protected. And so, you know, from a hunting standpoint, even though some of the ridge tops look like this or will be much taller come October, November, where it's not the key place where deer are going to be bedding. So that's going to be more off to the edges. Yeah, All that to be I just did some quick math. You said 150 acres like this. Yeah. Um, roughly 150 acres of this old field, it would take hundred and almost 105 acres of food plots to equal the same amount if you're going based on averages from the University of Tennessee research. So Ooh. old field managed with fire about – 3,000 to 3,500 pounds of mm -hmm. forage. Would you agree with that based on the research? Yeah. And then you throw in a food plot where, you know, depending on what you plant, let's just hope you get 5,000 pounds produced per acre. It's going to take about 105 
And obviously you're thinking, well, it takes more acres of this to equal that food. Well, this doesn't cost you anything other than time. If you planted 105, let's just say some of that same research or same, uh, same, you know, Dude, Dr. Craig Harper's that. team. $300 an acre to plant food plots. Yeah, that's, that's 30, over $30,000 to get a hundred plus acres. So not uh, happening for me. <laughs> My wallet ain't that thick. I can get no. it. I'll uh, lean more on old field. So, um, yeah. you know, I think if, if this is 80 grit at its finest, like, man, this would be beautiful. Um, if you incorporate some edge feathering plants, of shrubs, drag some treetops, then we're getting into something absolutely amazing. You can mow a couple trails out into some of your food plots, pass blinds, do yeah. that number. Uh, in addition to just, again, those fine little details, 220 it. And, and man, this right here is well on its way to being phenomenal wildlife habitat. And, and to me, an amazing use of the open space. No doubt. Um, you're not going to have any other form of management that's going to produce the cover or the forage naturally on this site. This is, no. this is it. Like this is just the best that it could be unless you want to go super, super crazy and supplement everything else. But this right here is where it's going to be. Old field yeah. management. This is phenomenal crop. summer right here. Probably not as wonderful during the winter months. Uh, it's not as wonderful. It's better cover. There is going to be some browse, but nothing comparing to summertime browse here. But that's why you also have to supplement or build upon this and go into your forest and get lots of forest regeneration and woody browse available to where you can have just year-round food on the property. Absolutely. So this does not equal photo number one. Photo number one definitely does not equal photo number two. Hopefully everyone can see those two differences. Um, Train your eyes, train your brain to know what the plants that are growing out there are. Green does not just mean good. It just means something's growing. But it's important to know what is growing. As we can see, the definite differences both in food and coverage, structure and composition between these two sites. And it was just a, a small amount of time, honestly, to, to change one to the other and, and not a large amount of or heavy investment um, to make it happen. Everyone can spray, everyone sprays their food plots so we can spray out cool season grasses and accomplish something similar to this on your own place. Yeah, I hope everybody's enjoying this series. Uh, I know we're gonna be doing it for a, a lot because we had good feedback on the last one. So, um, you know, I, I think trying to go into 2021 more, with more visual references in our work so people can understand more and more about what the goal actually is. And anyway, uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week. See you guys.